Central nervous system, no, you don't have this schematic. It's a netter one. I hated netter things because I thought they were too busy. They were all small writing. They have all these stupid things all over the place. But this is a great one for describing a couple of some generalities, some big picture stuff, big picture stuff, okay? Let's first talk about spinal fluid. Ooh. Where does that derive from? Choroid plexus, which are in the ventricles. And so this is choroid plexus up here, and we have it in the lateral ventricles and the third ventricles. We have it in the fourth, too. And it's an ultrafiltrated plasma. Let's stop there. Ultrafiltrate. So what's the difference between serum, let's say, and spinal fluid? Is there a difference in protein? Oh, big time. We're talking about grams per deciliter in serum. We're talking about milligrams per deciliter. And we're talking about spinal fluid because it's an ultrafiltrate. How about cells? There's hardly any cells in spinal fluid. In fact, if you see one neutrophil, that's abnormal. And so there's, there's no cells, really, in, in spinal fluid. How about glucose? It's lower. It's about 60% of what your serum is. So if my, my serum glucose was 100, it should be about 60 milligrams percent. What if it was 20? And that'd be low. That means that I have something in my spinal fluid that's utilizing it for energy, like bacteria or fungus or cancer cells that can all eat your glucose up. How about um, anything more in spinal fluid than serum? Chloride. Chloride is actually way higher in spinal fluid than it is in um, serum. Talking about uh, 120s. Now, why would they ask you this on an examination? Because, you know, they get injuries to the head area. For example, you've got a baseball hit you in the eye, you get an orbital blowout fracture. You could potentially break your cribriform plate. You can have some dripping fluid out of there. Is that snot? Is it serum? Or is it spinal fluid? For me, it'd probably be snot because I'm always drooling down there, okay? And so there you'd have to know what are the differences then between the two. Or you can get whacked in the head. Let's say uh, kids practicing baseball and they don't watch a kid and they whack a kid right over here, okay? And then, you know, the next thing you know, there's some fluid coming out of the ear, otorrhea, Okay, and then they get the uh, hemorrhage back here. That's called battle sign. And, uh, you know, what is that? And then that's a fracture of the basilar, you know, plate. And you can end up with, uh, with spinal fluid there. So that's why they want you to know that. Well, most of it's made up here, and it comes to this very dangerous area right over here. This is called the aqueduct of Silvius. And this is the most common cause of, of a hydrocephalus in children because this gets blocked off, and so you get a buildup of spinal fluid in the third ventricle and lateral ventricle, and so that will cause hydrocephalus. You can see why. That's a very, very narrow area. Okay, then it comes down into the fourth ventricle and has to get out because we need to get into the subarachnoid space, and so you have the frame of Lushka Magendi, and so fluid goes out there into the subarachnoid space. Let's make sure you know those membranes. The dura, from which the word durable, like dura, I guess, came from the word durable, let's put it that way. It means strong, durable, right? It's tightly adherent to periosteum. It's not loosely adherent. When we do autopsies, we have to use a plier to pull off the dura from the skull. So when we have an epidural hematoma, which means that you have a blood clot between the bone and the dura, and that is usually tightly adherent, and obviously 
The only pressure that could do that, that split that away, is arterial pressure. Okay, so that means that's the one that you rupture the middle meningeal artery in the bone, and under arterial pressure, you can split the periosteum away from the dura. Certainly not venous. No way, Jose. See the way I rhyme that? No way, Jose. That's very cool. I'm very good at poetry. <sighs> okay, now, it gets into subarachnoid space, and its main reason is for men. Why? Because we're always banging our head when we don't know something, and so we don't, God didn't want us to get concussions all the time, okay? But actually, that's its main purpose, is to protect our brain and spinal cord from injury. It serves no other purpose. No nourishment, no nothing, just basically a cushion uh, against damage. So, since it's always being made, we got to get rid of it, too, and we get rid of it through the arachnoid granulations, which are up here. There is a tumor that derives from that, and that's called meningiomas. Okay, it goes through the arachnoid granulations, and since there are no lymphatics in the brain, it goes into the dural sinuses, and they all eventually conglomerate down into the jugular vein, and that's emptied into the right side of your heart. So that when you do a valsalva, okay, and your neck veins distend, that pressure transmits all the way back into the dural sinuses, to the arachnoid granulations, through the spinal fluid, right down to that needle that you have in the subarachnoid space at L4. And it goes up, the pressure. That's called Quickenstead maneuver. It's a great test when you're doing a spinal tap to see if the entire subarachnoid space is patent. If you don't see that manometer go up, then there's something blocking the, uh, the spinal fluid more proximally. This is why they always warn you when you weight lift, never hold your breath, when you're exercising, because the pressures in your spinal fluid are incredible. A lot of times a disc will herniate uh, from that. Okay, so that's the spinal fluid story. Is there anything else I want to say uh, related? It's just one thing in terms of tumors. This is the uh, tentorium cerebelli, and 70% of tumors of the brain in adults are supratentorial. So in other words, they involve the cerebral cortex, whereas the same percentage, 70% of primary tumors in the brain in kids are infratentorial, most of which are cerebellar, cystic gastrocytoma, medulloblastoma. Let's talk about hydrocephalus. Let's talk about communicating and non-communicating. Now, here's another thing that screwed me up. I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I thought of these walkie-talkies. I mean, who's communicating here? What the heck are they talking about? And a lot of times they assume that you understand it. Actually, they don't. They don't either understand it, the people that write. Because now that I write, I know that when something doesn't make sense that I write, it's because I don't know what I'm writing anyway. Okay? And that's usually what's happening. Well, what they're talking about, communication of the spinal fluid in the ventricles with the subarachnoid space. That's what they're talking. That's the communication. So we have communicating types of hydrocephalus. And non-communicating. So let's deal with the most common one, non-communicating. What does that mean? Something's preventing spinal fluid from the ventricles from getting into the, to the uh, subarachnoid space. It's not communicating. Well, we already know the most common one is the, is the, uh, is the um, uh, aqueduct of Sylvius stenosed. I mean, one other obvious one would be something going on here in the, in the fourth ventricle, maybe an ependymoma. That's the most common location for an ependymoma in kids, the fourth ventricle. That would block it off. 
Or we can have a meningitis at the base of the brain, something like TB. It's famous for this. And you get a lot of scar tissue here and, and, and block the foramen of Lushka and Magenti. So those would be causes of non-communicating hydrocephalus. Now, communicating is not all that common. That means they're, they're still communicating, but there's still a buildup of pressure. Well, that's, that limits it, okay? One cause could be that you have a benign tumor of the choroid plexus, and they're all papillary looking. So if you had this tumor there and of the choroid plexus, then you would be doing, then there'd be a greater ultrafiltrate of plasma, and you'd be making more spinal fluid. And there'd still be a communication with here, okay? But the pressure would build up because you're making more than you normally do. So that could be one reason. But more commonly, what if you, what if you had a uh, subarachnoid bleed or a meningitis up here, you scarred off the arachnoid granulations, then you'd have no way of draining it out. Okay, so you still got a communication here, but you can't get rid of it. That's the most common one. Okay, all right. All right, let's do this. Let's say I grabbed this, this uh, spinal cord and I pulled it down like that. Okay, that would bring the medulla into the cervical region, maybe a little piece of cerebellum. What's the name of that malformation? Arnold Chiari syndrome. That's where you got the medulla and a little bit of cerebellum uh, in the cervical area. You get platabasia and hydrocephalus. What if, what if this whole area of the, of the cerebellum, this is called a cerebellovermis, this whole area never developed, including the fourth ventricle. What's that called? Dandy Walker syndrome. Good. Yeah, Nandan. Nandan Bhatt. Good. He's a neurosurgeon. Okay. Herniation. We're not talking about indirect inguinal hernias. We're talking about herniation here. I always have to always point to areas. I don't know why I do that. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, you know that, that kind of stuff. It's crazy. I just don't know why I do it. I guess I'm very, very, I want you to see it, to remember it. But that's kind of crazy, actually. Well, why would we herniate in the brain? because we have cerebral edema and it's got no other place to go. And the famous ones are, of course, the uh, herniation, what they call tonsillar herniation, okay, into the foramen magnum. You know when you had your tonsils removed? You know when you had your tonsils removed? It, it wasn't actually your tonsils. It actually was a neurosurgeon, if you check your records out, you actually had brain surgery, and they were taking out the cerebellar tonsils over here so that you couldn't herniate your brain. I know that they told some of you actually believe me this. This is really, really sad. This is really, really bad. Well, this is cerebellar herniation. I think you can see that, that this part of the cerebellum has been squeezed into the foramen magnum, and you got this, this kind of constriction around it. You're going to die in about a split second with something like that, but this is the one they like, and that's uh, uncle herniation. Uncle herniation is where the uh, medial portion of the temporal lobe, which they call the uncus, herniates through the, uh, the superior, uh, what do they call that? Uh, I just mentioned it just before, the tentorium cerebelli, herniates through it, and so it's pressing against your midbrain. That's not a cool place for a brain to press against, because notice it caused hemorrhage in there. These are called deraised hemorrhages. That's not a good place to hemorrhage. But that's also a nerve that's going to be compressed. Who am I? Oculomotor nerve, okay? So what will you have? 
only going to have some ophthalmoplegia because the ocular motor nerve innervates everything except the lateral rectus, which is six, and the superior oblique, which is four. Is that correct? All the other ones. So when your ocular motor nerve palsy, how do you feel right now and now? Do you feel down and in or down and out? Down and out. So ocular motor nerve palsy is down and out. If you look at the pupil, that's the way you determine where, 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 where it is. It'd be down and out. So your pupil would be down and out this way, lateral. That's ocular motor nerve palsy. Down and in, down and in like this, down and in is uh, trochlear nerve, fourth nerve is out. If you have lateral rectus, it's going to go in like that. Okay, you're going to look cross-sided. You better know all of those because they put schematics and they put little dots representing a pupil. And you have to, you know, they'll show them down and out, and they'll say, and then they'll give some clinical scenario, and you have to pick out which which way your pupils will be. They even had an MRI of the orbit; they had to name the muscles. Whoa. Okay. Well, so you're right, but there's also the parasympathetic nervous system, right? That goes along with that. And so let's think about the pupil. Now, parasympathetics do what to the pupil normally? Constrict it. Whereas sympathetics dilate it. So if you screw it up with the parasympathetics, which normally constrict, then what will happen to the pupil on that side? Metriasis. And actually, when I my reading on this, when I was doing one of my book things, um, the, the first sign of uncle herniation is metriasis of the pupil on the side of the herniation. And that's why they're always neurosurgeons are always looking into pupils and seeing what's going on. They see one side starting to dilate someone with, with a cerebral injury. They know they have there, there's a potential uncle herniation. So it dilates on that side. There's also an artery here that can be compressed. Can Mike tell me what that is? Posterior cerebral, so they can get occipital lobe infarction. You can see why they like this one. Guys, uh, if you've been looking at my high yield, you know that they've been putting a brain stem uh, an actual brainstem on there, and they're labeling every single cranial nerve. And you have and what they do is give you some clinical scenario. You have to pick out which of the cranial nerves it is. So you better know where all the cranial nerves on the brainstem arise from. Cold. Cold. Because it asks everyone from 1 to 12 on the test. Every single one of them. What's this called if you looked in the eye? Papilledema, okay? Papilledema. Of course, any cause of increased intracranial pressure can do that. You normally see a, a sharp margins to the disc. You don't see them here. This is papilledema. It's a sign of increased intracranial pressure. Who could tell me a vitamin toxicity where you could get something like this? Vitamin A toxicity. Very good. And who could tell me a heavy metal toxicity that can do this? Lead poisoning. And we get increased vessel permeability. Remember, the reason for that was delta amino lebulinic acid. Let's break. All right. What's this poor little child have? Hydrocephalus. Play odds. Stenosis of the aqueduct of Sylvius. Okay. Which would be communicating or non-communicating? Non-communicating. There you go. The reason why they get hydrocephalus is because the sutures have infused. See, if you miss a hydrocephalus in an adult and the, and, the, and the sutures fuse, then what will happen is you're going to get dilatation of the ventricles. Eventually, over years, the pressure will actually turn back to normal, okay, because, uh, because the increased pressures over a period of time will, 
will keep the choroid plexus from making as much, but the damage has been done, the ventricles and all that are dilated, and you can get dementia and ataxia, a related uh, urinary incontinence related to that, and that's called normal pressure hydrocephalus. Trust me, that started out initially with increased pressures, but over time, it normalized. They thought my mom had that, actually, at one time, because she was ataxic, and she does have dementia, uh, she, and she does have urinary continence, and so they did a ventriculogram. They, they uh, put a dye into her ventricles, and they were dilated, um, and so they actually were thinking of doing a shunt on her, but they decided against it. Mayo Clinic and Scottsdale said, it's not worth doing. Okay, so they just let it go. All right. This is a tuberous sclerosis, which is autosomal dominant, and it has a lot of interesting parts to the disease. It is. It has a, a lot of different hamartomas. Remember, those are are a proliferation, a, a non-neoplastic proliferation of things. And, and so take a look at the ventricles here. Do you see anything kind of weird on these things, on the ventricles? Kind of see that bump there, bump there. Look at that. There's a bump there, a bump there, a couple bumps. These are called uh, tubercles, okay? And that, that's where the part of the name of the disease occurs from. Basically what they are, little hamartomas, where you get a proliferation of astrocytes, and they produce these little hamartomas that can bulge into the uh, ventricles, and sometimes they call it candlestick drippings. They look like candlestick drippings. They get hamartomas of the kidney called angiomyolipomas. They also have mental retardation. They have those cardiac tumors called rhabdomyomas. So it's a very interesting group of diseases that one sees. And commonly asked on boards because it's not, it's relatively common. Uh, chagrin patches. These are little, little areas of, uh, of hypopigmentation. They're kind of hard to see. And so they recommend that you get a woods light and they shine out. You know, it's not that they're an infection, you know, due to, due to fungi, but it, they show up better under, under woods light, these what they call chagrin patches that are also seen in tuberous sclerosis as well. So this is this kind of ratty looking brain, isn't it? Um, not very normal looking, that's for sure. Okay, this is the worst of the open neural tube defects. This is anencephaly. Okay, when you have an absent brain. I'm sure that when you went through your uh, neuroanatomy, they talked about the vertebral arch defects, like the little one that's usually down at the base over here with a little tuft of hair coming out, spina bifida occulta. Okay, that's where there's just the vertebral arches don't quite touch each other. There's no meninges or anything coming out of there. Uh, a little dimple there, not a whole lot to worry about. But then if it's a little bit bigger, then so maybe the meninges come out, can come out, maybe not the cord that's called meningocele, or if it's even bigger, meninges and the spinal cord come out, myelomeningocele, that's very bad, but even worse than that is anencephaly, anencephaly. Now remember, uh, what's the uh, uh, alpha fetoprotein levels in the, uh, in the blood of the mother? They're high, okay? If they're decreased, what is that? Down syndrome, okay. Do you have to be on folate before you get pregnant to prevent open neural tube defects? Yes. Because remember, uh, the, uh, the neural tube is, is finished by, what, 26 to 29th day, somewhere in there. And so most of the time, a woman doesn't even know she's pregnant by that time. So the, it's already finished. And so it's too late to take the folate to prevent it at that time. That's a very common board question there. You've already seen this. Remember, that's Sturgey Weber. Okay, now I'm going to show you these two pictures here, and you're going to tell me what this patient has. 
That's Cafe LA, very good. That's the Cafe LA spot. And you can see this brown uh, pigmentation in the axle. It's called axillary freckling. Uh, there's a couple of neurofibromas there. This is uh, a uh, also neurofibromatosis. Remember, there's a movie called The Elephant Man. These are called plexiform neurofibromas. Uh, it, it exemplifies one of the things one sees in autosomal dominant diseases. We've mentioned late manifestations, and that's certainly true for neurofibromatosis. Um, uh, penetrance, it's not manifesting that in this particular case, but the other one's variable expressivity. Now, what does that mean? Basically, what it says, it says that you are expressing the disease, but there are different levels of severity that can be seen in that same family. These two were brothers, okay? And this is all this dude had. He just had a cafe LA spot and a couple little neurofibromas, little axillary freckling. That was it. But yet his brother with the same autosomal dominant disease, had a much worse manifestation of it with these plexiform neurofibromas making it look like elephant hide. Okay, so that's what the term variable, variable expressivity means, that the disease can have different levels of severity. You're manifesting it, but they can be different levels of severity. It's mild to very, very severe. So let me give you a couple uh, ways they've asked the question. They put this picture up, actually. And it said he had hypertension, and then they said, what test would you get? So you have to know there's a relationship of neurofibromatosis with theochromocytoma, so what would you get? 24-hour urine for VMA or metanephrine, whichever one they stuck down there. Okay, this person here had central neural hearing loss. What's he got? An acoustic neuroma, which involves, it's a benign tumor of Schwann cells of what nerve? Eighth nerve, okay? Um... Those were the two they asked. That's about the only ones. Other brain tumors that they get are meningiomas and also optic nerve gliomas. They get a, a, a benign tumor of the optic nerve. Actually, that's the most common overall aspect. They love neurofibromatosis. You can go to any mall in this country, and if you stick around there long enough, you'll see people with these little nodules all over their face and their body that have neurofibromatosis, very common disease. Okay, Cafe LA. Is that pathognomonic of neurofibromatosis, Cafe LA? Nah, you can have other things like this. There's a thing called, uh, what is the name of that thing? Ba, 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 ba. It produces precocious puberty, Albright syndrome. Precocious puberty, Cafe LA spots, and bone zits. Uh, polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, to be exact. So it's not pathognomonic. They're kind of coffee-colored, non-raised, uh, lesions that one sees, Cafe Aule spots. Sturgy Weber, we've seen already. Syringomyelia, I know that uh, I'm sure Nandan went over the different kinds of spinal cord lesions that you get. Uh, here's the way they ask syringomyelia. They'll talk about a person that works in a, uh, a factory, and, uh, and then uh, one of the uh, factory workers says, you're burning your hand because they were touching something and their hand was smoking and the person didn't feel it, okay? And then they said that examination of the patient revealed uh, loss of uh, musculature and the internal intrinsic muscles of the hand and had uh, 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 absence of pain and temperature sensation along in a cape-like distribution across the shoulders. Sometimes they put that in, sometimes they don't. Most of the times they don't. They just put in the lower motor neuron types of things with the intrinsic muscles of the hand. And then they put this thing in about um, the lack of, uh, uh, they can't feel pain. That's the way they usually do it, actually. And what they're trying to get you to put down is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. 
they catch a lot of people because you were taught that the first place that ALS usually develops is in the intrinsic muscles of the hand. And if you can see mine, uh, they're lost. Okay, I, I lost them, and I that one must have I forget how many years ago. It was many, many years ago. I had EMGs, I had fasciculations all over my body, and I was told I had lower motor neuron disease. Then I got healed, which is cool. That's another story. But I still got a little remembrance of what I had there, you know, with the loss of intrinsic muscles in my hand. I haven't lost them there. I did lose them here. Okay. So, remember, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is an upper motor neuron, lower motor neuron problem. It's pure motor. If you lack sensor uh, pain, you can't feel pain. That's sensory, guys. That would never be amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. That's motor and sensory. Because there's this big cystic cavity in the cervical cord that's knocking off your spinal thalamics, that's your pain and temperature, and it can knock off upper the uh, cortical spinal tracts, it can knock off your anterior horn cells, so it's going to be a combination of sensory and motor. ALS is pure motor, no sensory. Part two starts fiddling around with the bladder. Okay, they start talking about some motor weakness down in the lower extremities and bladder problems. That's syringomyelia because uh, patients with ALS have no bladder problems at all because those are more sensory. Okay, so that's what they usually do on part two. We already talked about Arnold Chiari. We already talked about Dandy Walker. Kind of sounds like a horse, doesn't it? This sounds like a good drink after dinner drink. Just like I'm going to have a Bud Chiari as soon as I get home. Okay. And then I'm going to follow that with an Arnold Chiari and I'm going to go to a horse race and bid on Dandy Walker. Okay. <laughs> All right. Infections. This is what meningitis looks like over here. Okay, let's make sure you understand how you're going to recognize meningitis from encephalitis, something that, that mundane. Meningitis is inflammation of your meninges. You're going to have nuchal rigidity. Okay, if you move your head or if you raise that leg up like that and extend the knee and you stretch that meninges, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt because you're stretching inflamed meninges. Encephalitis, I want you to think of sleeping sickness. What do you know about sleeping sickness? They sleep. In other words, they're, 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 they're always sleepy and drowsy. They have mental status abnormalities. They don't have nuclear rigidity. That's meninges. So people that have mental status abnormalities on, and are sleepy, they have encephalitis, not meningitis. And that's how you're going to tell in the stem of a question, you know, what you're dealing with. Okay. So this is what the pus looks like, and you can see this is at the base of the brain. So what's one of the dangers? If this was pus at the base of the brain, could you see possibly that it could maybe block off the lushka magendi, and there would be a problem of obstructive jaundice, uh, of obstructive hydrocephaly, or non-communicating, huh? You understand that when you treat meningitis nowadays, they use steroids and antibiotics, don't you? Do you know why they use steroids? That used to be heresy in the old days. They'd say never use steroids in treating a bacterial meningitis. Why are they doing that? The steroids is to prevent scar tissue formation, guys, and all those complications associated with meningitis that relate to scar tissue formation, hydrocephalus and stuff like that. And so it cuts down on that from happening. And so they're willing to take the risk of putting them on steroids as well as antibiotics. Now, it's always been standard treatment in TB meningitis. 
I mean, I remember way back when I was going to school, I mean, uh, 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 yeah, anti-tuberculous drugs and steroids were always given. That's because, because TB in the brain is incredible. It produces intense scar tissue uh, in there and also uh, 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 infarctions. It produces a vasculitis. To stop that, you had to put them on steroids as well as anti-tuberculous. So that was standard therapy way, way back there. Now they do it on any bacterial meningitis to prevent some of the complications. Deafness is one of the more common complications of meningitis. They go deaf, sensory deafness. So this is meningitis. This is a cerebral abscess over here. I showed you that one before. This is someone that, uh, oh, this is someone that was, uh, well, I'm going to tell you, ASQ, rabies. Okay. I finally figured out what the most common cause of rabies is in the United States. It was only in one book. Okay. What do you think it is? Raccoons? Nope. That's actually raccoons is here in the Jersey, New York area. Bats, that's way down the list. Dogs, that's the most common one in your countries. <laughs> Not our country. That's true, too, actually. Dogs is the most common cause in third world countries. Fox, no, that is in um, San Francisco area where you expect foxes to be the ones to cause something. Coyotes in Texas. Zebras, that's really good. <laughs> the answer is skunks. Skunks is the answer. It's in the, um, it's in that current issues thing where the internal medicine comes out every year. Okay, that big blue book with the orange on it. I think it's Lang series. And there it was, guys. They broke it all down by places. And it was in Jersey, it was raccoons, coyotes in Texas, foxes in the San Francisco area. Um, bats wasn't even listed uh, actually down there, and then but all the other areas of the country was skunks. Skunks was number one uh, cause. So that's the most common overall cause of rabies in this country: is skunks, not bats. And these, of course, nagri bodies. Okay, in a patient with rabies, that's a Purkinje cell. That's a an inclusion. That's rabies. Now you all learn about this one. But I want to see if you can recognize it. This kid, when they were, uh, were this kid has a congenital infection. Okay, and uh, when they took an x-ray of the brain, uh, they saw a peculiar abnormality. The kid died, and this is the section of the brain in that kid. Don't look at me. You're not going to be able to get the diagnosis looking at my eye. I don't have this disease. <laughs> Very good. This is periventricular calcification. This white stuff here, you can see it right there, it's going around the ventricles. See it right there, going around the ventricles. There it is right there. It's CMV, cytomegalovirus. Cytomegalovirus, periventricular calcification. It's due to encephalitis. Then it gets dystrophic calcification there. Now, CMV actually is the most common congenital infection in kids. And here's another board question for you. What body fluid is the most productive to culture to diagnose uh, congenital cytomegalovirus. Urine is correct. Urine is. Almost guaranteed growing it there. Okay, growing it out there. That's correct. Okay, that's good. Okay, this is the periventricular calcification. Now let's do meningitis. I, I, I can almost bet. I, in fact, I'll even bet. I'll even bet that you were taught something different than what I'm going to tell you by your microbiologist on meningitis. I, I, I literally almost put money on it. Okay, but I won't. 
because I'm very cheap also. <laughs> if I came home with less money in my wallet than my wife gave me, I'm going to get in trouble. Remember, I told you I was codependent. But anyway, she will ask me. She will check it because she put exactly $100 spending money for me, and I've hardly spent any. She's going to be very proud of me. <laughs> well, anyway, maybe they told you this. What's the most common uh, meningitis in the first one month of life? If they said E. coli, you knew they were in frontier land. Okay, that told you. Answer is group B strep, streptococcus agalactiae. It's the most common cause of meningitis and sepsis in a newborn. Main reason for that is, is that many women that are pregnant have the organism in their vagina, in their carriers. And so if they have premature rupture of membranes, it goes right up there and get a chorioamnionitis and eventually gets into the kid's bloodstream. By far and away, that's numero uno. Number two is E. coli. That used to be number one back then. Number three, they've been asking also, and that's Listeria monocytogenes. What should all pregnant women not eat? Soft cheese. Soft cheeses, like feta cheese, are no, 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 no for pregnancy because Listeria monocytogenes is present in soft cheeses. That's one of the most common locations. Remember also it's gram-positive with tumbling motility. You know, gram-positive rod with tumbling motility. Who else has tumbling motility? Trichomonas vaginalis. And so does Listeria monocytogenes. So soft cheeses, all of those have been asked. Now, from one month to 18 years of age, it's Nigeria meningitis. If they said Haemophilus influenza was in there, then they were in frontier land when they, when, they, when they looked up that information. That's probably one of the least common infections there is now because of the vaccination. It's Nigeria meningitis from one month to 18 years. Beyond 18 years of age, it's streptococcus pneumoniae. So actually, it's pretty easy to remember. So if they talk about a 52-year-old man that has nuchal rigidity, the spinal tap is done, reveals increased protein, uh, increased neutrophils, decreased glucose, and they're going to say, you would expect the gram stain to show. They've had gram-positive caucus, gram-negative rod, you know, all that kind of crap, gram-negative diplococcus, uh, gram-positive diplococcus. What's the answer going to be? Gram-positive diplococcus, that's how they'll do it. They're not going to put strep pneumonia. They're going to see if you know what it looks like. Whoa. Whoa was right. <laughs> okay. Alright. Indian ink preparation. Na that's it. Narrow base butt. See that? What's a broad base butt? Broad base butt. Basto. Basto. Very good. Okay. The reason why India ink works. It's because, like Klebsiella pneumonia, it has a big mucus capsule around it. So does Cryptococcus. Pigeons! All right, just wanted to make sure. Cryptococcus! All right, you're good both ways. This is very, very good. Your reversible biochemical reactions. This is very good. Okay. Now, who do you think this was in, this, this Cryptococcus there? would have to be an immunocompromised patient. So what's the most common acquired immunodeficiency in the United States? AIDS. AIDS is the most common acquired immunodeficiency condition. And cryptococcus is the most common cause of um, meningitis in AIDS patients. That's correct. 
you saw this already. This is mucormycosis. So and this was in the frontal lobe of somebody. Who was this patient? Diabetic in ketoacidosis. Very good. Now, this uh, is a special stain that was done on an AIDS patient who had a 50 uh, helper T-cell count and died. He had a, uh, on a CT showed a space multiple space-occupying lesions in the brain. And so they did the stain on these cysts, and the diagnosis is toxoplasma. Okay. This uh, person is uh, married to, no, this person is a sheep herder. No, this person is not a sheep herder. This person, no, this is not a sheep herder. This person, how am I going to get this one? Is a pig herder. Okay, this person takes care of pigs and has had a, a long time problem with focal epileptic seizure activity required dilatant therapy. And so they did an autopsy on the brain and there were these multiple cystic and calcified lesions in the brain. What did she have? Cystosarcosis. There was a young lady, she was uh, Greek actually, in one of my meetings that had a grand mal seizure. Thank God I wasn't actually there because I would have been frantic. Okay? So was everybody else who were watching the poor thing moving around and this and that. And it turned out she had cystosarcosis and the medication she was on was making her too tired so she couldn't listen to my lectures properly. She was falling asleep so she cut back on the dose of her medication so she could hear me only to end up with a grand mal seizure. That's going too far for me. That was not good. So we told her, please go back on that thing, you know, and uh, she, she did fine. But she, she had uh, cystosarcosis of the brain. Okay, remember some of the other ones you're going to need to know is Jakob Kritzfall disease or Kritzfall Jakob, whichever way you want to say it. What's the transmissible agent? Prions, okay. So who would more likely get this disease? Neuropathologists, particularly if they're stupid enough not to put gloves on their hand, and most of them are, okay. Uh, and they don't, and you can end up with problems. So can neurosurgeons uh, get this disease. And then, of course, you can get it. This is the mad cow disease thing. You can get it from uh, uh, from uh, foods. What was, it, what was it for beef, wasn't it? Uh, undercooked beef or something like that. Also, they got it from some uh, lettuce from uh, <clears throat> lettuce from Arizona. And I know exactly where it was. Yuma, Arizona is the most biggest lettuce place in the United States. And I know for a fact also, having driven by there, that they use cow manure for their fertilizer. And, of course, cows manure, using it for fertilization, I mean for for, for uh, uh you know, for what was they call it? Fertilizer. And the people did not wash the lettuce properly, I guess, and it was contaminated with, uh, with the Yaku Quizfold thing and they ended up with getting uh, disease that way. That You're going to get a question on Yaku Quizfold for sure. I think that's enough. I can't think of anything else that's important CNS-wise. These are your two traumatic lesions of the brain. This is an epidural hematoma. So let's make sure you understand how you're going to recognize it. What's this? That's a dura. Well, it looks to me that's sitting on top of the dura, right? It's not under it, is it? It's on top of it. So what does that mean? Epidural. So you tell me what happened to this dude. Got whacked in the head right over here in the temporal parietal lobe. And you know there's a blood vessel that goes to the bone there called, don't pick middle cerebral, middle meningeal. 
And so you have to fracture the bone. You cannot non-fracture. It has to be fractured. And then it avulses the artery. Then under arterial pressures, you are able to separate the dura away from the periosteum. And it takes about six hours. They actually counted this. I wonder who sacrificed himself to know find something like that out. And then when you get about 50 mLs of blood, you end up with an uncle herniation, you die. So you usually get whacked, you go down, you get up, you say, I'm all right, I'm all right. Six hours later, you're in the morgue. That's an epidural hematoma. Now, I love showing this to second-year medical students because they think the pathology is this guy was probed, hit with a probe right in the brain, like this, you know. And they get totally fixated on this, on this, on this device over here that to get that this, it's actually holding this giant blood clot over here that's actually covering the whole surface of the brain. They completely miss the fact that this is the undersurface of the, of the dura. See, if we took that top and I brought it down over here, you wouldn't be able to see that. It'd be, it'd be absent. You would see absolutely nothing. But then when you reflect it back, you see this giant blood clot over here, and, it's, and the undersurface of the dura is stained by this blood. This is a subdural hematoma. This is where you, you rupture the bridging veins between the dura and the arachnoid membranes. There's little tiny veins. Now, if you have to have cerebral atrophy like most alcoholics do and most older people do, then that space between the dura and arachnoid membranes is greater. And so those bridging veins are just dangling in the breeze. So just a little bump, they break, you get a blood clot that usually covers the whole convexity of the brain and you got yourself a problem. You have fluctuating levels of consciousness. Left untreated, these can end up with dementia and, as you know, big-time losses. See, the reason why ER people, when they have head traumas, always do a CT is to rule out stuff like this. See, MRIs don't pick up blood too well, but CTs do. And so they do that to rule out an epidural and or subdural hematoma because it picks up blood. That's also true for strokes. Okay, because you're, whether you're going to put a patient on heparin or not depends on whether there's blood there. If there's blood there, you're not going to put them on heparin. Okay, and was, so they have to see if it's a hemorrhagic type of stroke, and the best way of doing that is a CT scan on multiple things. MRIs are worthless for that. Speaking about strokes, here's one. You can see this side of the brain is bigger than this side of the brain. Looks a little bit more swollen. This is a close-up view, and we can see... The gray matter looking okay here, here. Then all of a sudden it looks like it's breaking down over here. We look in here, you see some breakdown here of the white matter. I think you can see that. This is an atherosclerotic stroke. <clears throat> this is, uh, there's no hemorrhage in this. There's four strokes, and this is the only one that is consistently has no hemorrhage in it. This is a pale infarct of the brain. The problem is right down here in the bifurcation, there's a big old atherosclerotic plaque that was probably pretty much occluding the lumen and then a platelet thrombus developed on top of it and there was no blood flow to uh, the, the brain. And so the brain infarcted, okay? And, and so it starts breaking down and because there's usually no reperfusion that occurs, usually the thrombus doesn't dissolve, uh, it remains a pale infarct. If the thrombus did break apart and you reperfuse the brain, and that blood gone into the area of infarction, and this would have been a hemorrhagic infarction. But the majority don't reperfuse, and that's why they're using pale infarcts. So when they have patients with these kinds of uh, strokes, the CT's looking for this. And they would say there's no hemorrhage in this, and this patient would therefore be a candidate for heparin therapy 
uh, in their stroke. Now, this is what would happen uh, uh, over time if this patient survived. You've seen this before. They'd end up with a big cystic space wherever that, wherever that area of infarction was. Remember, this is an example of liquefactive necrosis. So this is an infarct, pale, liquefactive, not coagulative necrosis. Now, everything else from now on will be hemorrhagic. I want you to look real careful at this and at this. These are two different things. I want you to notice over here. The blood, you notice, is right to the edge of the brain. That's a very key. In fact, it's almost, if you look at it, almost has a wedge-shaped appearance to it, doesn't it? Almost. And it went right to the edge of the brain. This is an embolic infarct. This usually is uh, an embolus, maybe arisen from the left side of the heart, and it embolized. Now, now the vessel that it will almost always go to when you embolize from the heart is it'll go into the middle cerebral artery. Gets into that circle of wills and right in the middle cerebral. If you MLIs down here, it's just going to go right into the superior mesenteric artery. Just the way they're angled. It's almost always middle cerebral uh, uh, in distribution. Okay, now the reason why this is a hemorrhagic infarction, while the, while the atherosclerotic stroke wasn't, is that you will get breakdown by the fibrinolytic system of the embolus and you get reperfusion of this area. Now, instead of it being a pale infarct, it's a hemorrhagic infarct. So both a stroke, an atherosclerotic stroke, and an embolic stroke are both infarcts, once pale, once hemorrhagic. Now, you've already seen this one, did you? In what context? Hypertension. And we went over this, that this is the classic picture they put on boards here. And we said that in hypertension, the pressures uh, cause the lenticular striate vessels, which are tiny little suckers. These derive from the middle cerebral. And they kind of come up and they, and, they, and they supply this area of the brain here. They, they form these aneurysms called Charcot-Bouchard aneurysm. This guy, Bouchard, is pretty important, isn't he? Then we call a Bouchard uh, node over here. So he's pretty pretty sharp dude. He's, he's in the brain. He's in the, he's in the uh, uh, whatever. Okay, and so what happens is the aneurysm ruptures, and this is a big giant blood clot. This is not an infarct. This is a giant hematoma, a blood clot in the brain that's literally pushing the brain aside. These things have a horrendously bad prognosis, but nowadays, as I told you, they can suck some of this crap out and they get a little bit better uh, prognosis. So we have this is an embolic stroke because it went to the surface of the brain. When you see a, a, a clot like this kind of in the area of the putamen, basal, basal ganglia area, it's always an intracerebral bleed. It's always hypertension. Last one, uh, we've already seen a big old subarachnoid hemorrhage, and most of these are due to a ruptured congenital aneurysm. Most commonly, they're at the junction of the anterior communicating branch with the anterior cerebral artery. This is an AV malformation. Okay. If this is an AV malformation, I already showed you a disease twice, actually, that I said had, on the same side as the skin lesion on the face, had a AV arterial venous malformation. What was the name of that disease? Sturgy Weber. Very good. Now look at this over here. Do you see anything wrong with this brain? Say yes. Why? It's pathology. Very good. Okay. That little thing there. Where is this? That's in the internal capsule. Okay, I don't know if Nandan went over this with you, but these are called lacunar infarcts. 
And these were very unusual kinds of infarcts because of the fact that they hit little small areas of the brain. And depending on where on the internal capsule, you can have a pure motor stroke, or you can have a pure sensory stroke, as opposed to combinations of the two. So pure motors, pure sensory kinds of strokes are these little tiny infarcts called lacunar infarctions, and they most commonly do the hypertension. Hypertension, little tiny things. Look at this real careful, please, because this is the absolute best slide of this, and the one most commonly used on boards. You're looking at the most common demyelinating disease in the United States. It's autoimmune. Now, I want to I ask you a question here. Um, what's ma what matter is that? Gray matter. What's this? White matter. Well, isn't this white matter in here? Well, how come it's gray over there? And it's gray over there. There, 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 and there. Why is it gray there? When it's supposed to be white matter. It's been demyelinated. See, white matter has myelin in it. Gray matter doesn't. And so if you're destroying myelin, then what you'll see is gray matter underneath. Okay, so these are the plaques that they call of multiple sclerosis. Remember, there's two ways you can demyelinate something. One, you can knock off the cell that makes myelin. In the brain, that is, oligodendrocytes, in the peripheral nerve, that is, Schwann cells. That's one way you can do it. Viruses like to do that, like measles. You know, it's like slow, these, these slow virus diseases, pan, subacute sclerosing, pain encephalitis, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, that papillomavirus. Those infect the oligodendrocyte and produce demyelination that way. But, but you can also have autoantibodies against myelin and destroy the myelin sheet, not the oligodendrocyte, and that's multiple sclerosis. Remember, this one is the one that every medical student thinks that they have sometime or another when they hear this, these little bzzz here, little bzzz there, little paresthesias. You know, their butt falls asleep when they're on the toilet and they think they got some kind of MS and when they're really just, you know, blocking off the sciatic nerve, okay, and stuff like that. And they get a little bzzz here, a little bzzz there and all that. You know, they ooh, the paresthesias, oh my God. And then things get worse from that point on. And, you know, the different other things happen as you start hyperventilating, get circumoral paresthesias and all of a sudden you're twitching and you say, oh my God, I got the disease. The medical students had just about every disease in the book when you heard about it, right? I got that. You I got that. I got that now. I mean, <laughs> it's just one of those things. You know, we are, we are really bad because we know too much. We know too much. I always think the worst when something bad happens to me. <gasps> I've got it. Finally got it. And I just know. That's why I never want to go to a doctor. There's some people that will go to the doctor right away. There are other people who want to deny it, just deny it. And I, you have to drag me to a hospital, uh, to a doctor. I will never go to a hospital, that's for sure. Why? Because you're there. Okay. That's, that's the main reason. Not you personally. Doctors are there. That's the absolute most dangerous place in the world to be. And this is the truth. It is a hospital. There's a really, really good chance you ain't going to come out of that hospital the same. I'm serious. My wife and I have agreed 100% we will never go to the hospital. We just stay home and die. We promise to help each other and keep each other, you know, happy until the end. But no hospital. No, no, no hospital. Okay, so I always think I've got, you know, this and that. And I go there and they come up with this explanation I never thought of before that makes sense. And all of a sudden you walk out 
singing in the rain, singing in the rain. You know, you know, you know, everything's just wonderful. You feel so good, you know. I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. Well, this is multiple sclerosis, and it's got all kinds of things. Uh, I, uh, one of the things, for example, is nystagmus. They get uh, ataxias. They get optic neuritis with blurry vision. That's a big one. Most common cause of optic neuritis is uh, multiple sclerosis. It's a demyelination of the optic nerve. Um, then there's this one that probably Nandan taught you. I can't obviously show you this, but I can tell you what's happening. As they look to the right, so the patient looks to the right, and they have jerk nystagmus on the right, and the left eye is still looking at you. They say, look to the left, and look to the left, and it's jerk nystagmus on that one, and the right eye is still looking at What's that? That's someone that doesn't trust you. Okay? Good. Now, what is that? That's in a nuclear thomoplegia. Okay? And it's absolutely pathognomonic of MS because you have demyelination of both sides of the medial longitudinal fasciculus. That is absolutely pathognomonic of MS. Okay? Absolutely pathognomonic of MS. Okay, anything else on multiple sclerosis? Yeah, if you do spinal taps on these patients, they'll have an increase of protein. Glucose is normal. Lymphocytes increase. Those are the, the uh, lymphocytes associated with the autoimmune disease, the cytotoxic T cells. And that's pretty much it for MS, okay? All right. That look like it's a normal brain? No. I mean, don't, don't look like a whole lot of cerebral cortex there. And it kind of looks like this is called, uh, is a, oh yeah, they call this hydrocephalus ex vacuole. It's where you have such severe atrophy of the brain that it looks like the ventricles are actually bigger than they should be. So they did some sections on this kid, on this guy's brain. He's over 65. He had dementia. And they did a silver stain and they found the absolute classic lesion that defines what this disease is. This is called a senile plaque. And it's neurites over here. And if you did a Congo red stain, uh, it would take up the stain, and that would be amyloid right in the middle of that. And I want you to tell me what the name of that amyloid is. Beta amyloid protein, that is right. This is the senile plaque. So the middle is beta amyloid protein, and around it are neurites. And this is kind of showing you that the, uh, the amyloid, beta amyloid protein is toxic to neurons. Because look at this, this, look what's left of them over here, and there's the amyloid there. So the more you have in your brain, the more damage you have to neurons, the more dementia you have. And because it's, it's uh, synthesized from chromosome 21, this protein, that's why Down syndrome patients all have Alzheimer's disease by 35 to 40 years of age. So this is actually pathognomonic of Alzheimer's. Neurofibrillary tangles are also present, but you can see that in any type of a dementia. And also, I think I mentioned to you uh, Huntington's chorea. You can see that. Remember, this is a higher intellectual function problem, which means that uh, they have problems with memory predominantly. They can't remember uh, anything. You know, you give them uh, remember, you know, repeat, you know, one, three, six, and then they can't repeat that. And so it's actually a clinical diagnosis. You have to do psychological testing. The only way you can confirm Alzheimer's is an autopsy. And so if you want to know whether your parent or somebody you know really has Alzheimer's disease, you have to have an autopsy done uh, at death. Okay, don't do it while they're alive. Okay. At death, and see if you can find the neuro, the, uh, the the senile plaques, and then you can confirm it. Otherwise, it's really presumptive diagnosis. 
that's purely done by clinical uh, testing. Uh, anything else I want to say on this that uh, that's new? No. What's this guy got? Parkinson's. Now, I don't know why they would show you the fingers because I'm sure they're trying to show you a resting tremor, but do you see any? This is where the audio files stop. There's nothing missing here. It's just the end.